I'll be reading from John chapter 5, verse 24 to 29, and after that, Isaiah chapter 5. <clears throat> Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one who uh, I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trembled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and joined field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an effort of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night, till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it would descend their nobles and masses, with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture, Lambs will feed among the ruins of the ridge. 
Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart robes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, who deny justice for the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down into the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spread the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts, he lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles uh, for those at the end of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seems like flint. Their chariots wheels like a whirlwind. Their, their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the rolling of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. Good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. I don't know if you noticed this, but a couple of years ago, did you see how everyone was reading 1984 by George Orwell and Animal Farm? It felt like, to me anyway, everyone was reading it. And so I thought I'd I'd join the hype and read them. Have you ever read Animal Farm before? Just put your hand up if you've, you've read it. Oh yeah, quite a few of you. Okay. If you haven't read it, it's basically a critique of communist Russia. It's not so much a a critique of of communism in general, but it's a critique of of what happened with the uh, Russian leaders of communism in that country, how they took things to really dark places. It's like an allegory. You have all these animals on the farm who overthrow the farmer. Um, But you know, they, they have this, this dream of, of equality that they're, they're going for, this, this dream of justice and this, this dream of the common good that they're all working towards. But very quickly what happens is the leaders, the pigs, they corrupt the dream. They don't care about the animals. They manipulate them and oppress them. And in the end, the pigs end up living in the old farmhouse just like the farmer, behaving like the farmer, even looking like the farmer. And if you've read it, do you remember how the horse was treated? Poor old boxer. He worked so hard for the dream. His answer was always, work harder, work harder. 
but he was manipulated and eventually he was sent to the knacker's yard to be turned into glue. Now, as I was reading Animal Farm, my brain was saying to me, it's just an allegory, Stephen. It's a little bit preachy. It's quite ham-fisted even. But my heart was saying to me, if I ever meet those pigs in a dark alley, I'll show them another meaning of ham-fisted. I was angry for poor old Boxer. Now, it, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it, the way we work, that you could give a lecture on the evils of um, what happened in Russian communism, but write a story, give a horse a name and a personality, and you can smuggle a message home to hard hearts far, far more powerfully. Today, in Isaiah we see something a little bit like Animal Farm. What's happening in Animal Farm? Our chapter, did you notice, it starts with a song. It starts with a very short little story that's in the form of a song. And like Animal Farm, this song is about people destroying a dream. And with this song, Isaiah, on behalf of the God he loves... He's also trying to smuggle a message to people with hard hearts. And the first thing Isaiah wants to say to them is that God looks for justice and righteousness in his people. God looks for justice and righteousness from his people. Now, it's quite probably grape harvest time and everyone is is celebrating and singing. And so Isaiah brings his own song. He says... I will sing for the one I love. And everyone's probably thinking, phew, finally Isaiah's branching out. You know, finally he's going to leave behind all that gloomy kind of death metal stuff that he's into and head towards a little bit of, you know, dabble in a little bit of mindless pop. But as the song goes on, we, we see very quickly, Isaiah is not singing about some romantic interest, is he? He's singing about something they would very much have related to. He's singing about a vineyard owner. This is more like a folk song. It's more like a protest song, kind of like Bob Dylan's Hurricane or Paul Kelly's from Little Things, Big Things Grow. Isaiah paints a story of a farmer who's chosen the best hill with the best soil, terra rossa. He's worked hard to create something beautiful. He's dug the soil, cleared the rocks, planted the absolute best vines available, built a watchtower and a hedge to protect it all, done everything to expect an absolutely amazing vintage. He's even got the wine press ready to go. But at harvest time, you know, harvest time, that that time of of joy for a farmer, he goes looking for the, the fruit of all his hard work, but all he finds is rubbish. And then year after year, nothing changes. Now this song is, is speaking their language, their landowners. They'd, they'd feel the emotion of this song. But I, I reckon we probably, we probably struggle to feel it. But maybe could you imagine instead something like starting your own business? Maybe like a cafe or something like that. Not, a, not as a kind of side hustle, but something you've always dreamed of doing. You quit your job. You put your house up as security and you you borrow $100,000. 
you lease a, a perfect place. You, you, you deck it out beautifully. You plan everything. Buy everything. Employ staff. Get up at 5 a.m. every day and walk late into the night, six days a week, missing holidays. And you open up for business. And what are you met with? Nothing. And then a month later, nothing. A year later, nothing. For all your, your hopes and dreams and hard work, how would you feel? I mean, you'd feel devastated. Heartbroken. That's what this song is trying to smuggle into the hard hearts of those who are listening. And Isaiah, he tells them the exact meaning in case they've missed it. He says, they themselves, these people, they're in Israel, they themselves are God's vineyard. They're God's stream. He'd chosen these people that that he'd saved from slavery in Egypt He'd saved them to be something special in the world. He'd planted them to reveal his character to the world. But what have they actually revealed? Well, look at what God finds in verse 7. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And this brings us to the next big thing that Isaiah wants them to see. God looks for justice and righteousness from his people. So when God finds injustice and unrighteousness, he takes it personally. When he finds injustice and unrighteousness, God takes that personally. Look at how verse 8 starts. It says, woe to you. Now woe is, is a kind of strange, almost funny word to us. If someone says, how was the game? And if we say it was woeful, by that we mean it it was kind of so bad it was almost funny. I think that's how we mostly use it. But for them, woe is not funny at all. Because this is a word that they used with absolute grief at funerals. It's a word that, that is actually communicating two things here. It's a threatening word. Because it's saying... Death is just around the corner. But it's also a lamenting word because it's grieving that that's where their evil has brought things to. In the rest of this chapter, as as you would have noticed, as Pung read it for us just before, Isaiah, he spells out the bad fruit that they've grown that is offending God so much. And he does it with these six woes. We're going to look at each one just briefly. And as we do, though, what I want you to think about is, what does it tell us about God's character? Have a look at the the first one in verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now, remember the the context for this that we've been seeing. It's about 750 BC. It's getting to the end of King Uzziah's reign, his long reign. And that was a time of um, a prosperous time for them because Assyria in the north had been busy with their own problems. Egypt in the south had been busy with their own problems. And so in that kind of power vacuum, they'd prospered immensely. And what have they done with that prosperity? Well, it turns out some of them have prospered by crushing 
their neighbours taking their property, prospering at their expense. Now, does this sound familiar? I mean, it sounds a little bit like the property market in Australia today, you might be thinking. You know, it feels like this could be addressed to super rich baby boomers crushing the Australian dream with their 10 investment properties and negative gearing. But while it might have something to say to that, I mean, it definitely has something to say to that, it's a bit different um, because we've got to remember their calling. They were called to be God's special people living in a land that was owned by Him. So really, they're just tenants in God's land. So for them to try and buy up the land of others was offensive to God because what they're doing is is they're pushing his people out of his land. This would be more like one of your kids somehow managing to buy their brother's or sister's room in your house and evicting them so that they can store their stuff in there. You know, it's ridiculous and it's funny. But then imagine if you took a, a job overseas for a year What wouldn't be funny is if you heard one of your kids had turfed one of your other kids out on the street. And that is exactly what they are doing, this kind of thing. Their greed meant they didn't care what God wanted for his people. They didn't care about his kingdom. They cared about making their own little kingdom. And God is personally offended by these kind of ugly kingdoms set up within his beautiful kingdom. He's personally offended by kingdoms whose fruit is is greed when therefore it should have been generosity and and, and love of neighbour. Now can you see the, the character of God here? And don't miss this. God's character never changes. Never. God still hates greed and self centeredness God still loves generosity and contentment and love of neighbour. And if God says woe to his own loved people, you can be sure he says woe to every expression of greed and self-centeredness like what we see here. This week I, I, um, I read about a real estate agency that advised all their landlords that the best way to get the maximum rent was to evict all their tenants, tidy things up a little bit, and then jack the prices up with new tenants. Another real estate agent said she she dreads stories in the news about how rental prices are going up so much because when she gets to work that day, she has to field call after call from owners saying, why aren't you getting these kind of rent increases for me? Now, if you have an investment house or if you're a boss employing people, even if you invest your money, make sure you remember this. God never changes. God sees and he cares. And greed and self-centeredness that steps down on other people, that runs against the character of God. But your generosity and kindness, that's the kind of fruit that he delights in. Now, all of that, all of what I just said is true, but there's actually a little bit more that we have to take from this if we're going to properly apply Scripture here. Because what 
makes what they're doing so bad, that the nature of it, is that they are pushing God's people out of God's kingdom. That's particularly what makes it so offensive to God. And it's worth just reflecting for a moment what that might actually look like for us today. Now, occasionally, you come across people in churches who are like this. They don't really care about other people or care what God wants at all. They're not on about walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Really, they're on about growing their own patch, their own influence, their own power. And so in their their selfishness within a community, they hurt other people and, and they endanger the faith of other people. Now, some of these people, if you've ever come across them, they're just petty. They, they just love to be praised. They just love to be the, the big fish in a small pond. And they just kind of carelessly drive out other fish. But some people are truly twisted. And they're coercive, controlling, manipulative, sexually manipulative even, pedophiles even. And where you see people like that, know this... No one laments it more than God himself. And he takes it personally. Look at how else the the people in Isaiah's day had produced bad fruit. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. These people who've made themselves rich with other people's wealth, what do they then do with their wealth? They chase good times. They they chase pleasure. They've got no regard whatsoever for the, the fruit that God is passionate about. They're just passionate about their bands and going out, partying, living it up. Now, obviously, there's something missing in their lives, but instead of getting on with what has real meaning, instead, they try to fill what's missing with a self-indulgent way of living. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I don't know if there's anything worse than being completely sober and having to endure the kind of self-indulgent, childish behavior of an adult who's absolutely drunk especially when you know that they're, they're shirking their responsibilities somewhere else. They've got a wife and kids at home waiting for them. Isaiah, he's saying God's people are like that. They couldn't care less that, that God had called them to produce fruit. God wanted them to give the world a taste, not of drunkenness and self-indulgence, but a taste of the kind of wine that God delights in. Justice, righteousness, mercy, truth, sacrificial service. Now again, there's many parallels to to today, you know, compared to a lot of this world, our country is just incredibly well off, incredibly well off. Even with inflation, you know, causing pinch at the moment. Have you seen the way many of us spend our money in this country? We can be pretty indulgent in Australia. We can try and, and, and feel what's missing in our lives by chasing after pleasure. Uh, alcohol, parties, travel. 
And instead of getting on with what has, has real meaning, we too can be pretty self-indulgent. And again, while this is, is true of our, our world out there, our job is to actually ask ourselves, is it in any sense true of us here? You know, sometimes, occasionally, you do see people who, who call themselves Christians, but in, instead of seeking God's kingdom first, really they're, they're just seeking pleasure in life. Sometimes they're at church with us, but they're not actually at all interested in Jesus. They're not letting him call the shots in their life at all. He doesn't make any difference to their life at all. Now, where you see that, know this, no one laments it more than God himself, and he is personally offended. We see four more woes in fairly quick succession. Look at verse 18. Isaiah says, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart ropes. Now, what, what you've got here is these, these are people who are invested in their evil. They're attached to it. They're not going to leave that way of life behind. And even when they're warned in, in verse 19, they say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Essentially what they're saying is, I'll see it when I believe it. Or they're kind of saying, when I see judgment getting closer, that's when I'll do something about it. Now again, this, this is often the case today. You know, Some people know there's a God. Some people even know deep down in their heart that he's going to judge them. But really what stops them turning to him is that they don't want to leave behind what they know he hates. They're attached to a, a way of life that God doesn't like. And those of us who've, who've cut those cords, who've turned to God, we know that's like you know, holding on to a, a tin of cold baked beans when you could be sitting down with your family for a roast dinner. It, it just can't compare. We know for everything that we give up in finding Jesus, it's actually like giving up rubbish for treasure. But some people can't see that. Some of us here, we, we knew that turning to Jesus meant giving up drunkenness or addiction. Some of us knew it meant giving up greed and, and dodgy business practices or giving up using people for sex or pornography. And at the time, that was hard, but now there's no way we would, we would exchange what we've got for what we once had. But there are those who'd give up on God because they're unwilling to give up on those sorts of things. And again, looking closer to home, we still see this tragically among us from time to time, sometimes. You know, some of us see Jesus, see what he calls us to, but what our heart wants more is a particular sexual relationship or expression or an addiction or a self-centered kind of dream or way of life. And sometimes we see people, they just won't cut the cords. They won't cut the cords on that kind of evil that they're attached to, even when they know it cuts them off from Jesus. And where we see it, again, know this, God laments it. 
God is personally offended by it. We see the next woe in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. God says justice and righteousness is good and these people, his people there in Israel, they say, but what really is justice and righteousness? Isn't what we're on about really, when you think about it, justice and righteousness? You know what Israel did and and what we're doing right now in our world is, is we've received, we've inherited a way of seeing the world that's been given to us by God. We've inherited a, a rock-solid foundation for knowing what's good and what's evil. But they, and, and now us, we're throwing out that foundation. We've stopped looking to God as the only solid way that you can call something confidently good or evil. And we've decided that we're going to decide for ourselves what's good and what's evil. And the foundation of, of what's good and what's evil is what my heart says is good and evil. Which is really no foundation at all. I mean, hearts change all the time. And what happens when what my heart says is good and evil clashes with what your heart says is good and evil? The human heart is such a shaky foundation that of course it's inevitable that we're going to start calling evil good and good evil. We see this all around us. Everywhere we're calling good evil and evil good. Like even in little ways. Have you heard the expression, you need to look out for number one? Or I think uh, L'Oreal sort of puts it slightly smoother sounding because you're worth it. Other versions of this are things like even, you know, you can't love others till you love yourself. Or listen to your heart got to be true to who you are on the inside to thine own self be true now there may be elements of truth in in all of these things but so often what we're really doing is calling selfishness good another way evil is called good all around us is is everywhere we hear that greed is good not in those words probably we call it consuming Or more nicely, we might say participating in the economy, stimulating growth or investing in the future. And again, there might be elements of truth in all those things, but so often what we're really doing is calling the greed of our own heart, the greed of companies, good. Another way evil is called good is is when we hear love is love. We're told we should celebrate two consenting adults doing whatever they want to do. You know, we shouldn't grieve certain sexual expressions. We should be proud of them. In fact, we must be proud of them. We must wear a a badge to work to show our pride. Now again, there's truth that we should treat all people with love and respect regardless of sexual choices but what we should never do is call something good that God calls evil but remember this is this is God speaking to his people 
And so we need to ask ourselves, do we see this? Not, not around us out, out there, but, but amongst us, do we see this? Are we at risk of this? And I think we are in, in, in a whole variety of ways, but today I just want to quickly just pick up on one growing vulnerability that I see for God's people in Australia. As society becomes more and more polarised into camps, we can jump onto that bandwagon here. And then we can end up mistreating people who think differently to us. Now, let me try and explain what I mean. So with COVID and how we respond to COVID, we could divide and mistrust each other and judge each other. And, And even more currently with the voice to Parliament. We could divide and mistrust each other and judge each other. Now, I might, I might think the voice is clearly what Australia needs. I might think that it, it's a way that the kind of injustice that God is raging against in Isaiah can be undone. I might think it's, it's, it's very clear and those who think otherwise are narrow-minded, self-interested and hard-hearted. Or, or I might think the voice is clearly what Australia doesn't need. I might think it's not going to bring us together, it's going to divide us. It's not going to right injustices, it's going to cause new ones. I might think that's very clear and that those who think otherwise are naive and deluded and sentimentalists. But whatever my view, if I think that justifies me treating my brother or sister who has a different view to me badly, treating them with anything but grace and generosity and gentleness, If I think my opinion justifies me treating someone harshly and and cutting them off, maybe, avoiding them, being angry with them, arguing aggressively, make no mistake what I am doing. I'm labelling evil good. Joining other people's bandwagons and, and risking dividing up God's people, risking taking people's eyes off the cross of Jesus, off what really matters. We need to be careful that that we don't do that and we don't label that as a good thing. And where we see it, know this, God laments it. God is personally offended by it. The next woe is, is in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And we're going to put the last one together as well. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but each of these woes kind of leads to each other, if you think about it. So you're getting rich by dodgy means. It leads to living for pleasure which leads to them being unable to give up that evil way, which leads to them justifying that kind of evil behaviour as good, which leads them to thinking they're wise in their own eyes. And and where it all lands is funny, because they're not just right, they're not just wise. What are they? They're heroes, champions in their own eyes. 
But rather than being a hero of anything that actually matters, anything of any value, instead of bearing fruit in the world and making a difference, they're heroes at mixing pina coladas. I mean, Assyria is on their doorstep and they're shaking up a mean cocktail and it breaks God's heart. And this brings us to our last point. God's own justice and righteousness drives him to anger and action. God's righteousness and justice drives him to anger and to action. Now, do you know what comes naturally to God is his love and his faithfulness. Do you know what comes unnaturally to him? Judgment. But he must judge. Because if he doesn't, then he's a part of the problem, actually. He'd be condoning what they were doing. And that is just not at all the character of God. Now, we might be ashamed of God judging the world, but we shouldn't dare be ashamed of that. Look at how God sees it in verse 16. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy in his righteous acts. That's how God sees it. And we see what their judgment is, is going to be in, in verse 26 and we'll see more about this when we come uh, back to Isaiah, Isaiah later on in the year. But we see their judgment is going to be he lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. You know, Isaiah tells them God is going to bring on them Assyria. And that is their judgment. But judgment isn't just an Old Testament thing. You know, Paul says in the New Testament, in, in Acts 17 verse 30, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Can you see how astounding this is? God is heartbroken by the fruit we've produced. So what does he do? He allows his heart to break further in order to make a way that we can turn back, repent. In Jesus, God takes into himself our judgment, dying in our place, taking our woe. That's God's character. That if we turn to him, we'll never know his judgment because Jesus has known it for us. But you notice here, God doesn't ask us to turn back. He doesn't ask you to turn back. He commands it. Because either way, we will know God's justice and righteousness. We'll either know it by knowing his anger, or we'll know God's justice and righteousness by knowing Jesus. Jesus, who produces for us the fruit that we could never produce ourselves, and then produces in us the fruit that God delights in. Either way, we will face God's justice and righteousness, either alone, facing only his anger, or with Jesus, facing only his love. Let me pray for us.
Father, uh, we admit in our hearts we don't particularly like to think of your judgment. It's because we know that we are deserving of it. Lord, um, we are kind of embarrassed by your, your judgment at times and we ask for your forgiveness for that because it's your justice and righteousness, it's your beauty that demands that evil be answered. Lord, we are just so thankful to you that in your beauty, in your love of us, your faithfulness, you have provided a way for us to have our judgment taken by Jesus in our place. We just ask, Father, that you would cause us to obey that command to turn back to you. And that having turned back, we would delight in following in the footsteps of Jesus, in following and living out your character. By your spirit, bear the fruit in our lives that, that you want. We know we do it imperfectly in this life and we will do it perfectly when Jesus returns. But help us as a church community to give our hearts to this, to be a vineyard that bears the fruit that you love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.